Hello, and a very warm welcome to this episode of Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. I'm Luke Nichols, editor of Edie. Coming up in this episode, BT's head of sustainable business looks ahead to some of the biggest supply chain challenges facing the green economy. One of the big challenges that we will all be facing is around the circular economy. How do we make the circular economy a reality? Mars's global sustainability director tells us time is of the essence when it comes to managing global supply chains. You know, when you look at something like poverty and the income levels of farmers, you know, we have to act now. Waiting for the regulation to come in will take too long. And we do some future gazing with Michelin's head of technical communications to explore the zero carbon cars of the future. Imagine in the future uh, that uh, they choose the car to download and then if they had their own 3D printer and are able to build their own cars. So, yes, hello and welcome back to this sixth episode of Sustainable Business Covered. First off, I think an apologies in order actually for being away for so long. Uh, we've been three weeks now without an episode of the podcast, partly due to myself taking a long and quite luxurious holiday, but also because of the craziness we've had here on the news desk over the past couple of weeks, most of which I actually missed. Um, so I'm joined here in this makeshift podcast studio by Edie's senior reporter Matt Mace and reporter George Ogilby. How are you doing, guys? Yep, very well, thank you. Yeah, just about just about getting through the week. It's been a it's been a long one, but yeah, it's um yeah. And I mean, considering I've only just emerged from a very small village in in Croatia with uh, no internet connection, no TV, no English newspapers, um, what did I miss? Any big big news over the past couple of weeks? Where do we begin? I don't know. There's uh, been ministerial changes. We've had the get David Cameron resign, Theresa May come in. We've had departmental abolishments and uh, to. to to, to top it all off, we've had uh, the revelation of Pokemon Go. Haven't we? I mean, that's that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, looking looking from my Twitter feed on on that kind of day where Theresa May kind of went wielding the axe, so to speak. Mm. It was it was either Deck Theresa May or Pokemon Go. There was no variations. There might have been one Big Sam tweet in there, but other than that, that's been the uh, it's been all go on the. Uh, on the political front. Yeah, and uh, we've managed to get through that entire segment without mentioning the B word. Um, but I guess it is worth reminding ourselves that the last time we were together in this room, um, we were 24 hours away from the EU referendum. We still had David Cameron firmly in number 10. We had no major challenger to Jeremy Corbyn at, at Labour. Um, so, yeah, from a policy perspective, um, I did pick a, a bad couple of weeks to, to be away, or a good couple of weeks to be away, depending on how you look at it. Um, but in this episode, we want to steer away from all that and focus really on, on what, what matters for, for us and, and for you, our ready readers. We want to look at the continued drive of the green economy, the great collaborations and innovations happening at the moment, which Matt will fill us in on shortly, and the general sustainability success stories that continue to happen regardless of, of that fluctuating political backdrop. So, uh, where should we start then? I think we should probably start with... Um the event that I went to a couple of weeks ago, which was the ED Sustainable Supply Chain Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brought together sort of sustainable professionals across all sectors uh, looking to overcome the challenges created in supply chains. This was so this took place a couple of weeks ago, sixth of July, wasn't it? That's right. Our sustainable sustainable supply chain conference. Um, Okay, and you conducted some interviews with many of the speakers there? That's right. There was, um, I spoke to three speakers there. Um, 
two for a uh, head of sustainability from uh, major companies. Uh, so I spoke to the head of sustainability uh, at Mars, which is uh, Kate Wiley. Mm-hmm. And I also spoke to Gabrielle Guinea at BT. Okay, so uh, let's go straight into those interviews then and run them back to back. So starting with Kate from Mars, then on to Gabrielle from uh, BT. Here's those interviews. So we've just finished the opening session of the supply chain conference, uh, the future of sustainable supply chain management. And I'm joined here by uh, Kate Wiley, the Global Sustainability Director of Mars. How are you, Kate? How did you find that? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, loads of interesting questions. Yeah, people are really thinking about things. Yeah, it's brilliant. Mm, that was a very engaging discussion, I thought. So the session sort of centred around on um, companies investing in the future of supply chain, Yeah. Um, which is quite interesting for us because recently we've been providing a lot of coverage so companies like Nestle and Mondelez CSR reports have come out and they've shown a, like a big increase of um, commitment to supply chain transparency which has um, resulted in greater traceability improved social um, impact so mm-hmm. uh, bringing it back to Mars what what would you say is um, have been the biggest like financial and social benefits for both Mars and the supplier in terms of um, investing in the future of supply chain and um, what have been the most effective methods of doing such? So talking about, so how about I talk about our approach? You know, so I think what we're doing, um, so we um, are sort of rigorously mapping our supply chains at the moment. So that's transparency and traceability you talked about. And we've identified 23 priority raw materials um, that we're mapping to understand our supply chains. And then... Um, how we then identify what the right strategies are um, is and we take an impact-based approach. So what are the impacts that you want to drive? And we have five impacts, two social ones and three environmental. Um, Human rights, income, um, greenhouse gas, water and land. And then we tailor the strategies depending on, um, you know, the supply chain, the issues involved and the raw materials and also the business um, context that we're operating in. So it absolutely depends on the um, raw material and the supply chain as to what the most effective strategies are. Um, but to give you flavours, you know, we go right through from... Um, um, agricultural science research through to um, certification through to um, pure um, investment in technology transfer and technical assistance to farmers um, and so on. So it depends on um, what the raw material is um, and the supply chain as to what the most effective strategy is. Mm. But you absolutely need to understand your supply chains at the start of that. Definitely. So um for, for all this supply chain transparency to um, come to fruition, I suppose it, uh, it takes a lot of uh, collaboration, yeah. uh, both with peer companies and uh, the supply chain itself. And I know this is something that Mars has been quite uh, focused on in recent years. So um, tell me um, how you could see collaboration improving um, between uh, Mars and other companies in the next five years and sort of the scope, how that, how that would actually happen. So let's talk about the sort of fundamentals of supply chain. They're made up of different actors. And so you've got the branded goods manufacturers, you've got the suppliers, and you might have multiple suppliers. You've then got um, the farmers. You've then also, if you're doing a sort of project, you've got um, NGOs or program implementers. You may have researchers and so on. Um, And so you've got a huge amount of different individuals as part of this um, initiative. And so collaboration is sort of fundamental to any sustainable um, sourcing approach. Um, There is collaboration on a number of different levels. You might have it through industry bodies, um, 
and so on. But actually, one of the, the sort of example I talked about today was our investment fund, where Mars has partnered with Danone, and we've both invested um, 15 million euros each to sort of initiate the fund. Um, and then later have two other investors as well. But we've all invested to um, drive sustainable supply chains at scale. And so it's an investment fund model, um, uh, yeah, to, to invest in um, smallholder supply chains to improve social, environmental and um, economic impacts. Mm. I suppose um, when engaging within the supply chain, there's always, there's always going to be risks, whether it's uh, sort of economic, social, environmental... So if in, for Mars, what, what, what have you found the, the biggest risk within a supply chain to be and how have you been able to overcome that? Gosh, the biggest risk? Um, I, I keep on answering with it, it depends. But I think, you know, the, the biggest risk depends on the raw material. So um, the risks you face in, um, or the, the sort of the impacts that are within um, cocoa, which is around, you know, mainly around sort of serious poverty and sort of low productivity of the crops, is very different to that um, when you're looking at something like um, dairy, which would be more around um, the greenhouse gas emissions. And so it depends on the raw material as to um, the impacts um, and the risks that you face. Um, so, yes, so I haven't really sort of given you one. I think it depends on the raw material. But what we've done is we've, um, we've done a few different series of analysis working with organisations like um, WRI, WWF, um, Maplecroft, um, and so on, to analyse our supply chains to identify the, those five impacts as the priorities that we need to um, focus on. Okay. So um, with these risks... Um, I suppose risk can be mitigated through regulations. Um, talking about this um, Nestle CSR report that we covered recently, um, Nestle uh, just uh, announced that they'd uh, become part of a UN reporting framework on on human rights, which yeah. is um, so external investigators can come in and tell them where the progress needs to be made. And they've set, I think, it's eleven core goals on how human rights. Um, activities could be improved um so yeah. what what would be your view on regulation do you see it as an enabler um or is, is regulation the best form of um being able to help s- supply chain sustainability or, is, or should it be more the role of um the company and organizations themselves i think it's both right regulation is one of the tools we need here um but in some areas, we kind of can't wait for regulation. Um, you know, when you look at something like um, poverty and the income levels of farmers, um, I think, you know, we have to act now. And um, waiting for the regulation to come in um, will take uh, too long, I guess, um, to do that. So um, it's absolutely a tool, but it's not the only tool we should use here. And there are other ones, such as innovation as well, um, in order to really drive the change we need. Could you elaborate on innovation? What, what, what sort of innovation do you, are you talking about? But, uh, yeah, so I touched on it um, in my presentation. Is There's probably innovation at every level. You need innovation in agricultural science to um, understand what are the most um, productive uh, varieties of raw materials, of um, crops, what are the most productive crops, or what are um, the most Produ- um, the most efficient techniques to um, improve the yields um, 
of the raw materials um, or um, in the in the supply chains you know what are the business models that we need in order to build um, um, sustainable supply chains you know that that requires innovation um, how do you organize your organization how do you um, build sustainability into sort of the buying operations again that requires innovation and then how do you drive this impact at scale most efficiently again so the example of the fund there um again it requires innovation just us to just keep trying things you know and um share our learnings um because it's a massive undertaking that we've all got to go on here um and so we've got a sort of partner to do it thank you very much kate pleasure my pleasure So we've just finished our second session of the Supply Chain Conference and I'm joined with Gabrielle Guinea, uh, the Head of Sustainable Business at BT. Uh, How did you find that session, Gabrielle? Uh, I found it um, really interesting, uh, but but it's also good to see that there are some commonalities uh, amongst the speakers and amongst the approaches that we're taking, so it seems that we're all uh, kind of on, on, on the right lines. So um, I suppose where you came into the discussion was uh, to uh, tell people about BT Supply Chain Benchmarking Tool, which is um, sort of internally developed. Uh, I was wondering if you could uh, sort of expand on uh, what this, the, f- the tool focused on, the, maybe the challenges that you faced and sort of lessons learned. Yeah, sure. Um, so it comes from um, our Better Future Supplier Forum, which we launched in 2012, um, which is a, is a forum um, that we've developed to try and drive sustainability innovation and sustainability practices within our supply chain. And the way it works is that we assess our suppliers against uh, best practice in in 10 different areas. So that uh, covers things like eco design, the circular economy, CSR, environmental management, um, etc. And we assess them against best practice and then we work on improvement plans with them so obviously they can um, get better and and that's with training and um, education. But um, we we only did that with about a handful of suppliers because it was quite time-consuming and very hands-on. So we wanted to look at how we we could scale, and that was the biggest challenge, was how could could we go wide in this approach. So we um, developed a uh, web-based tool, which we just launched earlier in the year, um, that basically is a 30-minute questionnaire that um, a supplier can go through in, in those 10 areas. Um, but what the uh, what the tool also does then is to provide very detailed feedback um, of the responses and improvement areas and, and actions that uh, that a company could take. And our hope is that um, our suppliers can take this web-based tool and roll out to their supply chains. And obviously, then we will have a lot bigger impact than we would have had just on our own. So that's what we're hoping for. It was interesting uh, listening to your discussion and uh, talking about perhaps um, collaboration with other um, organisations. I know uh, you mentioned, uh, was it just just yesterday that uh, Land Rover had announced that they had um, actually uh, become a member or signed up to your uh, accreditation scheme? Uh, we, we had a... Um, an interview with Niall Dunn just recently and um, he sort of talked about how um, the the idea of open sourcing uh, standards uh, so companies work together in collaboration um, I was wondering how you see that developing in the future and sort of the importance of collaboration 
Yeah, I, I think really it's, it, it's critical. So to mention a, another example of carbon footprinting, um, so looking at our carbon footprinting methodologies where we're also looking at the positive impact uh, companies can have. So for example, uh, BT customers using conferencing services and avoiding travel, that's a positive carbon impact. And when we developed that methodology, we, um, we open sourced it and basically you know, shared it on our websites uh, very detailed and I think it's very important um, to share things because that means that you can learn from others and you get feedback and that allows everybody you know to become better to learn more and to improve um, so I think it, you know it, it's very important and uh, the way what we've done with the Better Future Supplier Forum and with a web-based tool you know is to trial it on a few companies you know piloting I, th- I think that's that's very important. So um, clearly, uh, it's BT is sort of approaching supply chain risks and opportunities in, in innovative ways through the uh, Better Future Suppliers Forum and the web-based tool. Um, so I'd just like to hear your thoughts, really, on what you think the importance of, um, of going forward beyond minimum requirements and sort of pushing that uh, innovative um, methodology and uh, challenging um, other organisations and suppliers I think one of the big challenges that we will all be facing, uh, which we also discussed in, in the panel, is around the circular economy. You know, how do we scale? How do we make the circular economy a reality? Um, and, uh, you know, we're not there yet. We don't have the answers. We've been working, again, with our suppliers. It's very much collaboration. We've been working with universities to do research on how we can use recycled plastics and how we can get those into our products and services. But huge challenges just in take-back schemes, getting consumers to return stuff. Um, so I think that's the next challenge that we need to crack. Okay, so two very interesting interviews there. Uh, particularly like what Kate had to say about that link between supply chain management and innovation, two areas you might not initially think would be so interlinked. Um, and then with Gabrielle showing us just how important it is that sustainability and CSR professionals always look at these supply chain issues with a really collaborative frame of mind in order to, to drive holistic change. Anyway, who did you speak to next, George? So later on in the day, I caught up with uh, Marta Iglesias, a consultant for Carbon Trust, and she sort of elaborated on um, the expertise that the company provides for big companies such as Mars and BT, but also how the company is helping smaller companies who may not have the same resources. Um, the first question that I asked her is quite a broad one, but it was, um, why should companies care about sustainability within the supply chain? Here's her answer. Well, in uh, in my view, there are a number, uh, there are, uh, a large number of drivers for companies to pursue uh, a program of sustainability in the supply chain. The probably the basic one and the one that uh, is at the bottom of of all programs and all, all corporative uh, programs is compliance with um, with regulation. But there's uh, um, the many others such as. Um, as we've we've seen before um, during the session, the the opportunities, the financial opportunities for uh, for resource efficiency improvements in the supply chain, avoidance of risks, um, down through stakeholder pressure and and customer pressure. So when companies look beyond what's required and set themselves some longer term targets, looking at what's coming and what is achievable, then this. Uh, 
really drives innovation um, internally in the company, sometimes even with uh, partnerships with uh, other industries and, and with suppliers, but it drive, drives um, innovation because they don't always know how to get there when they set themselves ambitious targets for, uh, for the long uh, or the medium term even. Good stuff. So um, I also spoke to Gabrielle Guinea from um, BT and she talked about how BT's uh, benchmark tool has, um, although it was internally developed, has actually um, gained from the help and expertise of um, companies such as yourselves. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how important you feel collaboration is in the supply chain sector between companies such as yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, there's some some uh, big companies like uh, BT or, or some other of the um, of the big players in the sustainability area that uh, have very strong internal teams looking into sustainability, obviously moving from the operational sustainability um, in-house beyond um, upstream into the supply chain or downstream into the, the products, and they have a lot of um, internal internal capability. Um, then we, in this case, you know, we, we work with some of these companies like BT in kind of niche areas um, where they benefit from the the expertise of, of people like us, uh, the Carbon Trust, that um, adds that that uh, extra level of, of knowledge and of knowing what's going on in the um, in the industry at a global level of being able to anticipate some trends that maybe they are not uh, so you know paying so much attention to, and uh, and basically I think it gives uh, the companies that extra level of um, of uh, assurance and, and of confidence that the the work they're doing and that they are possibly thinking of uh, of sharing externally is uh, is robust and and can be shared with you know with confidence on, on their side so um, for major companies such as BT and also Heathrow Airport it's um, it's it's good for them because they 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 have the resources, they're able to um, sort of create their own benchmarks. But w- what would your message be for s- the smaller companies of the world, like the, the SMEs? Yeah, um, we work with companies of, of all sizes, really, from the, the large, big players, as, as you mentioned, BT or, or Heathrow, uh, GSK, etc., to, to small uh, small and medium-sized uh, companies. Obviously, you know, this... Uh, the challenges we're talking about are global challenges, um, regardless of a company's size or a company's um, location and, and the, the extent of supply their, their supply chain, which now these days is really generally global. Um, so for for a smaller company with smaller uh, amount of resources and, uh, and more limited budgets, I would say that um, it's possible to do some simpler, less sophisticated solutions and, and analysis but that are still very effective in terms of informing the strategy and the way forward for, um, for, for these smaller companies. So, for instance, a, a diagnostic tool that, that we do um, is, a, is a basic hotspot of the supply chain for which we need um, the procurement data of the company and then we can convert that into carbon emissions and, and very quickly and uh, not very painfully at all, uh, identify what suppliers or what sectors of the supply chain um, are, are more polluting and uh, therefore which ones would, would it make more sense for a smaller company with limited resources to, to target, to, to have an impact. Um, then 
if I may, I'll add another point, which is that I think, um, and it is probably true for, for large and small companies, um, is that the, the trick is to manage, um, to integrate sustainability into existing operating procedures, be it at the procurement function level or at the product design level. It's basically, um, it's vital to make it part of, of the, the function, not just of the sustainability team who sits in a, in a separate office, but is, is part of how the, the company operations run. So you don't necessarily need a, a big team for a small company, a big team of 10 people um, that look after sustainability. Hmm. The, the trick would be to make that extra layer of, of incorporating sustainability into everybody's job. I suppose a lot of that has to do with um, behaviour change as well within an organisation. Um, and I know clearly, well, you've put it well today, the benefits are, are significant for companies who do get on board. But um, I, I suppose the question I ask is, what, what are the major difficulties that you've found with companies who maybe are not so keen to get on board? And then how have you been able to overcome those difficulties? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's... Um, it's Sometimes it's a bit of a challenge, yeah, because um, depending on who you're talking uh, with and and what uh, kind of function inside a company you're you're talking with, they have different objectives and they have different uh, different time frames, different uh, kind of KPIs they're they're measured against. So I think it's really important, and in some cases it's challenging, but you you need to get the buy-in from the top Um, for for that. Um, I am a big advocate of uh, data, really. Um, we don't have all the data and we don't need all the data, but the, the trends are there. They are, they are showing that we, we have very big challenges to, to address and that actually it makes sense to address them because companies, the same as you know, the whole um, kind of civil population, we, we are all at risk if things don't change and businesses are at, at risk of, of not not being here in 30 years' time if things uh, if they, they don't do, they don't progressively move uh, proactively into, into uh, being more responsible and, uh, and more, more um, you know, more um, having a, a more comprehensive view of their impacts from a social point of view, environmental and, and obviously economic, which is <laughs> the economic is the part they don't forget. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I would say certainly... Um, critical to, to get the buying from uh, from the top, for which I said, use uh, use data. But then, yeah, this behavior change, this kind of embedding it into um, into the the employees' uh, way of of working and and um, identifying themselves with what the company stands for. That's that's really important as well. So sustainability can be a very personal issue, really, for people that that's looking, you know, at the planet and that's that's, that's seeing all this. All these um, issues happening and, and predicted to, to happen in the future. So, I believe there's a way to connect, but you you have to kind of orchestrate a program to to make it alive. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Marta. Thank you, George. Okay. Wow. So, uh, really useful conference from the sound of it, George. Yeah, it really was. Um, it was quite refreshing, really, how all these leaders from various companies in different sectors could come together and sort of share their ideas and techniques used and sort of their um, best practices. So I think what I gained from the uh, conference was how collaboration within sectors and also with suppliers is um, actually 
helping drive change within supply chains. Mm. So very interesting. Yeah, all three other speakers you spoke to mentioned that word. It's uh, imperative now, isn't it, in supply chain management? Anyway, so uh, on to you then, Matt. Uh, what have you been up to while I was away? Um, I've I've been pretty much relocated up to London. I think I, <laughs> I've had a I had a week where that was that was pretty much all I was. But I think the main talking point was probably the weekend I spent up at the Olympic Park for Shell's Eco Marathon, okay. um, which is this whole kind of concept about um, highlighting to the general public what the kind of low carbon future would look like. And the main kind of crux of it is all around low carbon mobility. Um, and that's the kind of where the marathon aspect comes in. There's there's races from various types of low carbon mobility. It's not just EVs, but you've got three D printed cars. You've got cars made from wood, which Michelin, who invited me up, were really keen on in terms of um, you know low low carbon mobility in you know developing countries. Yeah, it's strange that car cars made from wood. I always seem to think that that's like an old old going back in time. But apparently, yeah, that's kind of a more of a low I carbon. Think, I think it, like just going off a bit of tandem that's kind of where companies are kind of going now you know like you remember I used to rent videos from from blockbuster and now moving towards a sharing economy where we're <laughs> going to start renting stuff so maybe yeah maybe old the old ages have the answers <laughs> yeah. so did you get to try out any of these cars or uh, i wouldn't say try out i was a passenger um okay. yeah i think they must have seen my driving beforehand and thought no chance but um <laughs> no um i the car i was in was shell's kind of concept car which is technically road road legal and it's got all the right parameters to be road legal. They're not interested in pursuing it. It was um, merely demonstration. But um, there are other cars on the tracks from universities. It's, this event was open to universities. No, that used to be open to companies like Honda, who would send a load of engineers, create this amazing kind of EV concept, and win every time. Mm-hmm. So to kind of stimulate competition, they've just opened it to universities who literally from scratch build these build these cars that have strict kind of parameters on the speed they can travel, the weight of the car, um, how much it emits, and its fuel efficiency. Mm-hmm. So what was the, I mean, the, this, so this took place on a weekend, first of all, so dedication to the cause? Yeah, well, exactly, although, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a weekend up in London, which I, I won't say no to, but um, <laughs> yeah, over, over two weekends, so they did the kind of, almost like a, a Grand Prix style, they did the uh, times and trials on the first day, okay, and then a race on the second. With the overall aim being to just raise awareness of, of, of where we're heading? or It's to raise awareness, but I think it also, it is... The, this whole event is very much geared at kind of the millennials and also families as well. So for okay. family, for spectators, it's all about them learning about um, this kind of innovations in a way they would understand. So not too technical, which meant it was an absolute dream for me. Um, but also for the actual participants, I think it's really kind of sparking an interest. Like I think a lot of people are saying there is this need to kind of get these new engineers on board. And these are these are universities like Southampton was there mm-hmm. um, from around the, from the, around the world, like Turkey, Germany, all sorts who are you kind of almost breeding these new like engineers for the low carbon movement. Okay. Who did you speak to? So I spoke to uh, Damien uh, Holes from uh, Michelin, mm-hmm. um, and he kind of talked me through this whole kind of low carbon movement. Uh, Michelin have been involved with the Shell Eco Marathon since its like inception, um, and they are they, they are really kind of interested in this sphere, and as well they kind of gave me an insight into the whole aspect of what role a tire can play, which is something you don't necessarily think about. So for instance, beforehand they put me on this little bicycle. Um, with two different types of tyre efficiency. One which was a brand new tyre uh, made to the latest specs and one with an old one and just told me to cycle. And the difference it has just on your own energy in terms of being able to actually pedal quickly mm. is is ridiculous. And when you kind of 
transfer that over to an engine and how much fuel it uses. Interesting. Yeah. And so that was that was them um, what their main focus was because that's what they're an expert in. Mm-hmm. They are experts in in tires, but they also have this kind of vision for how they can pair up and transfer some of the some of the things they've seen. They're interested in in three D printed cars and that kind of interest as mm. well. So yeah, well, hopefully he uh, has a chat about that with you now. Here's that interview in full. I am now joined here by Damien Hallas, the Head of Technical Communication at uh, Michelin Group. Um, we've just enjoyed uh, a nice healthy salad lunch and we're kind of overviewing, overviewing the track where a lot of the kind of concept cars and prototypes are, are going around. So, um, so Damien, again, thank you very much for inviting me up here. And I was just wondering, as a start, if you could just um, explain to me what the Eco Marathon, why it was established and what it's hoping to achieve in terms of the future of mobility. Mm-hmm. Well, the Silicon Marathon began in 1985. It, uh, it was first come from a challenge between engineers and to be uh, to, to cover a given distance with a less amount of energy. And from this from the state uh, they began to open to universities and then it was a very good opportunity to most of or many universities to share the uh, this challenge to be able to cover a distance with a less amount of energy so of course uh, they uh, all the university have to uh, uh, to, 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 to to join the race uh, with this uh, scientific um, spirit uh, to know how to reduce as much as possible uh, this uh, uh, I would say the rolling resistance of the car. So here we have uh, two kinds of uh, of cars. We have the prototypes and the urban concept cars. Well, the prototypes is a little bit more free to design the car. It's uh, like a, it's sh- the shape is like a cigar, and uh, the goal is well to 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 uh, to be the best performance as possible to uh, for in terms of fuel energy. And a little bit more constrained for the urban concept cars, uh, we have to be uh, uh, much more close, much closer to what uh, we can see in the future in the city. Okay, that's why it's urban cars. Um, and so all the students will work to uh, to identify first all the factors that will help to reduce as much as possible the uh, the energy with, with the shape of the car, of course, to, uh, to have to, to reach some streamlined uh, shape of cars. Uh, then to reduce the inertia forces, uh, so they will weigh, they will work on the weight. So propose cars as light as possible. Then, of course, to, le- to limit all the friction in the car, so they will work on, for example, direct transmission of the energy to, uh, to the wheels. Uh, to face uh, also what we call the rolling resistance of the tire. And, uh, of course, we are designing dedicated tires to, for the students that have a very, very low rolling resistance coefficient or, in another word, a very, very high energy efficiency. Well, that's um, a very, <laughs> very good start to the, to the whole concept. So it's it's kind of engaging, um, it's engaging younger students to, uh, to kind of adopt this mindset, this scientific mindset of, of a low carbon transport um, concept. And we've seen we've seen a, a fair few examples go around already. And you, you pointed a few out to us. Uh, they range from kind of three D printed cars, which which kind of um, allures the idea of building your own car. There's there's a car made entirely out of wood, which would be you know revolutionary for kind of developing countries where where the funds and the technology perhaps isn't isn't available. But there's um 
there's an Italian prototype, the the Exam, um, I believe it's called, um, which which is is here today to, to demonstrate, and hopefully it's commercial viability basically. And um, for for cars for cars like that, and and for cars that you can work with, uh, Michelin that can work with, that can that can potentially take the step up from from demonstration to being used in and around cities. What what do you think? Um, needs to happen for that that kind of concept ship where it goes from a prototype to a to a mainstream vehicle in in the selling mix hmm. of course yeah of course uh, it's a very interesting point of view we have and we share uh, we have to share here this is our view of what is the mobility of the future and of course there are a lot of concepts here uh, that we are very uh, fond of uh, what you notice uh, is, yes the uh, possibility uh, the ability for people to download uh, their own car so imagine in the future uh, that uh, they choose the car to download and then to either have if they had their own 3D printer or going to a fab lab and are able to build their own cars. Um, a second um, idea which is uh, very interesting is, uh, as I said, to uh, completely open for developing countries is to be done, well, to download drawings of a car and they can do it by themselves in wood, for example. All this kind of thing is very, very interesting. Uh, the, 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 all the targets some teams have uh, in, uh, in the, uh, attending the Shellaco Marathon is also to be able to propose a car for tomorrow. And uh, we are working, for example, with the exam with the Politecnico di Torino, which is an Italian university. Uh, we want to homologate their own car. And uh, they already came in our sound technology to uh, fix some uh, something to help them, to advise them uh, to uh, to make this happen. Okay, and um, in, in terms of Michelin's role in the whole thing, when when you think of you know low carbon uh, vehicles of the future, you, you you tend to think about the engine types. You tend to think about um, hydrogen power. You tend to think about electric uh, vehicles. Um, and as a, as a Predominantly a tire, tire company. What role do kind of tires have have to play in in driving down efficiency? Yeah, of, of course, yes. Yeah. The uh, the engine has a lot of importance, but uh, maybe um, many people don't know that the the, the key role the the, uh, the tire has. Uh, maybe you might not know, but on your car, your passenger car, one tank out of five is for the tires. Is what we call the rolling resistance of the tire. Uh, we are proposing for this race to for the students, and we are still working, of course, for for the uh, for the uh, for the, all the cars, the drop public cars. But for for this uh, for this race, we are doing dedicated tires that are five to six times more efficient than the most efficient tire we can find out in the market. Just to give you an example, to give you an, an example, uh, an idea of what is rally resistance. Um, it's measured in kilogram per ton, which is easy to understand. If the tire is loaded by one ton, how many kilos it means to apply to the road, to the to the um, to the wheel to make it roll. Okay, uh, the best we can find out in the market is around 6.5 kilogram per ton. It means, okay, six kilogram kilos to apply to the wheel to make it to make it roll if it's loaded by one ton. The tires we are proposing here for the prototypes is only 1.1 kilogram per ton and for the urban concept cars only 1.3. And for us it's a wonderful, it's like a competition, so we'll a wonderful laboratory to, uh, uh, to, to work on 
either to, to be able to uh, uh, decrease the role, uh, to, to, to decrease the consumption uh, of a car due to the tires while keeping the high performances, the set performances of the tires. And, uh, and this helps, of course, to work for the, uh, for the, the, the tires you are proposing for, uh, for the, all, the, all the passenger cars. And our target is uh, from 2030 to reduce of 20% the, the running resistance of our tires. And obviously that's, um, I, I was on the bike earlier and felt firsthand what it's like to have you know, a, a more efficient set of tyres and just the, uh, the load that was, that's taken off my leg. So I think that's, I think that's what people aren't, aren't realising with, with tyres is the more efficient the car is, the less fuel it's using. But obviously this, this um, eco-marathon is not just about cars. There's, there's a lot of stalls about kind of fuels for the future, how to power London, um, kinetic energy and stuff. And looking around, the, the people, it's very kind of family orientated. Um, and specifically the fact that the competition has opened up to students. Um, how, how important is that to kind of get in the next generation on board? You mentioned over lunch that Honda used to um, um, attend these events and it was, it was kind of shut down because they were always, always winning. So the fact that it's just universities engaging with young millennials to, to take up this drive, is, is, that, is that a deliberate attempt to create more interest in the low-carbon mobility in the future? Yes, it's good to uh, yes to uh, to uh, embed, I would say, the university in this uh, mobility adventure because they have a lot of ideas uh, to uh, to push, uh, and also what I love as well the spirit we have uh, here on the event because uh, all the teachers are sharing the information and how they made the uh, this uh, uh, to to improve their performance on the car and they are sharing this and uh, and. Um, it was it's something I love, and uh, on this event is uh, yes, it's uh, sharing all the ideas to uh, yes to work on better mobility. Okay, and um, well, I think um, I'm about to head off to the track in a minute to, to try out one of the cars. Really looking forward to. So, Damien, again, thank you very very much uh, for your time. It's been a pleasure. A fascinating insight there, then, uh, into the future of mobility, uh, particularly significant as well, considering this week's announcement from the EU on uh, its new framework to reduce emissions in sectors outside of the emissions trading system, and that really uh, that framework really centres on, on vehicle emissions, so it's good to see so much proactivity happening when it comes to driving these low-carbon innovations. Now, sticking with that theme of innovation, uh, we have time then for our usual innovation zone segment, or whatever you like to call it, Matt, mm-hmm. uh, of the week. So um, what have you got from the past couple of weeks, actually? Strange enough, the the two ones that really kind of well, actually, it's not strange enough the fact they stick in my head because they're the most the two most recent ones. But um, Tesla and Google have uh, unveiled some pretty interesting kind of uh, concepts over the last kind of forty eight hours or so. Um, Google's one is very technical in the sense that it's managed to train artificial intelligence to monitor its kind of cooling process at its data centers. Um, you know, data centers for these kind of tech companies are one of the biggest sources of uh, energy uses. And, you know, the ins and outs of it are, are pretty technical. I like to think I did a good job of it in the article to explain it to our, to our readers. But um, I like to imagine it as the, uh, the kid off of um, Artificial Intelligence, the film, is that you're just sitting in these data centres and he's, he's monitoring stuff such as the weather mm-hmm. um, the kind of the, and the temperature in general and then adjusting the outputs and um, the usage of these data centres to, to match. Wow, so it's like smart metering. It is. It's, it's smart metering, but less kind of automated in the sense that it, it can reflect real-time scenarios as well. 
And um, yeah, the other kind of mover in this innovation sphere is again another, um, well, not another one, but a, a disruptive company in Tesla. Um, they've announced the, the the kind of second phase of their master plan, and it was basically um, Elon Musk had been talking about how ten years ago they came into this industry to to create a commercial electric vehicle that was cost competitive. I wouldn't say they're quite there yet, but they're definitely on their way. I think the, the model. Uh, Model three is going to start around twenty five thousand mm-hmm. pounds, which is you know it's affordable for some, mm-hmm. uh, definitely not me. Um, <laughs> but they've definitely moved on. They're moving more towards this kind of um, sustainable energy kind of Goliath, I suppose, is what they want to become. Um, they've purchased Solar City, um, and this whole aspect of it is creating you know m- mixing the power walls with solar panels. But the really interesting thing is is their views on autonomous vehicles, self driving vehicles are taking off. You know, Ford, Vauxhall, uh, Jaguar, and they're all they're all hedging their bets on it, and mm. evidently so is Tesla. And they they outlined their kind of vision, which would eventually see once it's once um, self-driving cars have been regulated by by legislation and politicians, they envisage a kind of Tesla fleet. So you could purchase your Tesla, mm. um, get driven into work by your Tesla, go go to a board meeting while you're while you then get paid money to let your Tesla go and pick someone else up and drive them where it needs. It's almost like this kind of um, Uber service for self-driving cars. And it's just a, it's another in- incentive to, for, for customers, mm. paying customers mm. to, um, to jump on these kind of innovative bandwagons because not only can you generate money through the energy storage systems that they're offering, you can now generate money for a sharing economy approach as well. Mm. Yeah, I suppose no surprise there then that Tesla and Google are sort of leading in the innovation front, but nonetheless good to see them actually focusing so much on low-carbon innovations and, and sustainable innovations. Okay, so um, last but not least then, um, George, you're going to sing us out with uh, Lionel Richie's Hello. <coughs> um, <laughs> I think Just, just kidding. Uh, so you're going to provide us with uh, the sustainability success story uh, of the past couple of weeks. Um, obviously, as we mentioned at the start of this show, um, there's been some um, negative vibes around from, from Brexit and, and obviously all the political changes happening here, the abolishment of deck but if we're staying away from that i mean hopefully there's been some good stories over the past couple of weeks that have showed that green business is is become sort of much more separate from that and has actually kind of really become the driving force there certainly has uh, while there's been this uh, sort of uncertainty uh, that's looming over the uh, uk policy landscape there has been a lot of positive um, contributions from businesses in terms of uh, green initiatives and i'm going to hit you with a few now so we have uh, Jaguar Land Rover uh, announcing UK trials with a fleet of connected and autonomous uh, cars, which could be a um, very uh, positive uh, change in the future. We also um, have Ford uh, formed a collaboration with the world's biggest tequila producer to explore the potential yeah, of biomaterials. Fascinating, that one, actually. A really mm. good example of kind of cross-sector collaboration, that, two companies. That almost made onto my innovation list, to the simple fact that tequila's my go-to drink, yeah. just soft drink as well. That's just what I drink around the office Trying now. To jump, put it on the innovation bandwagon. <laughs> um, okay, well, what else? And the uh, the retailers have been getting involved as well. So we had uh, Asda, who became the first supermarket to show customer food waste savings. I think 
they showed that customers on average, uh, by making savings within uh, domestic food waste, could save on average uh, £57 a week, okay. which is, uh, sorry, a year even, but yeah, still, still very good. Yeah. Uh, Tesco revealing it will sustainably supply 100% of its cocoa. They were going back to the supply chain and mm-hmm. the benefits there. Yeah. And only today we heard the announcement from the energy developer Vattenfall, who announced a £300 million investment uh, for offshore wind farm in Scotland, um, uh, which comes among a time of uncertainty for policy, but it does show that developers are still willing to invest in this uncertain period. Uh, (laughs) That there you hear is a moped going past (laughs) our very makeshift podcast studios. Carry on, George. I was just about to allude to the fact that it would, this is all happening despite unpolicy policy uncertainty and despite the fact of that Donald Trump is um, in staunch opposition. Mm. So, mm. Good. Okay, interesting. I, I suppose point to note, all of those were within the past sort of seven to ten days, weren't mm. they? So mm. um, amazing to see such a plethora of different green business um, projects continuing to take place and take shape, many of which in the UK. Anyway, that's, um, that's just about all, all we've got time for of this episode of Sustainable Business Covered. Um, this podcast is now available on iTunes. Um, just run a search for Sustainable Business Covered. Otherwise, you can still listen directly on the site. Just search for ED Podcast for the full list of episodes. Email us with any ideas for future topics you'd like us to cover or speakers you'd perhaps like us to, to try and interview. Uh, our email address is podcast at favfav house.com we will be uh, back with our weekly format more regular format from now on uh, you have my word uh, George is away next week um, so it will be just myself and you Matt um, and actually we'll be joined by our new reporter Alex for now though it's uh, a goodbye from Matt bye goodbye from George bye and goodbye from myself goodbye goodbye